Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want to go to rugby heaven? Let's go back to 1987 with Squidge. And welcome to the final. We made it. We got through and reached the point in which we will never need, necessarily, to watch a rugby match from 1987 ever again until we start a retrospective on the first of a premiership i am joined <laughs> as ever by mr will owen how are you doing i'm all right i mean you say that that's until we complete every world cup and we go back through them again after that which is definitely <laughs> something we Christ. have in plan we, look look we've got more men's world cups to get through we've yep. got women's world cups if it was possible to get footage for games yeah them. And yeah this is yeah. something we've talked about and gone over at length but it's impossible to get hold of all the games yeah to cover one it's and certainly something kind of in the future if we can properly. yeah if we can yeah. get to one that we will eventually do but if we ever get to that if we ever get that desperate we can cover sevens world cups if we get that desperate yes or Look, we can cover what rugby can league we define as a world cup it's a very good question yeah but Right. World Club Cup, that's going to come into come into play. One day, one day, we can shove that in. We've done yeah. the Lions Tour, you know, there's no rules. It's true. But, right, it was a question World Rugby were asking for many years. 1995, they finally went, yeah, right, we'll do a World Cup. Yeah. And 18 months later, they had one. They had one put together. And boy, has it been just as shoddily put together. But you can tell actually a lot of hard work went into it. Sure. As you'd kind of hope and expect. I will also say, so you just introduced me there, that my name is mm. Will Owen, as it happens. And because, um, as, as, as we both know, uh, probably the majority of the audience of this podcast come just for me, okay? Yes, so for all of the of people course, who are course. unaware, could you please introduce yourself? Oh, I'm Rob Yosquid, whatever you want to call me, from uh, YouTube. You may have heard mm. that. Um, I also yes. realised that if I was a good co-host, I would have introduced you, but no. I'm not. No, you're not. No, I mean, no, you not. No, you don't have to. What? No, it's fine, is what I meant. So, we are here today, and I am getting right into it, because there's a lot to get through. Yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. the final of the 1987 Rugby World Cup, right? And it's an amazing feeling, kind of getting there, right? Because when we watched the 2011 tournament, we kind of built up towards the final, and we're really excited about the final, and mm. excited about that, because it's we both love that game. Right, we but we watched it live yes. together at the time in twenty. We have great memories of it. Uh, yeah. We both recall sitting on the sofa and watching it together, and the drama yeah. of it, and the real intensity of it. And that was that was the overwhelming feeling, wasn't it? That we we could really dig into it. And it's a game I think we've both watched independently before watching it back for the podcast. We watched back, you know, in yes. kind of ten years intervening for uh, recreational purposes. Yes. This game, on the other hand, I think we were looking at in very different terms. I think a part yeah. of us was, a part of me certainly was going, when we get to the final, I've never got to watch another bloody 1987 game ever again. But, right, certainly. when we finally, I finally sat down to watch it, my brain was going, I just thought I was going to be watching an old rugby match once a week for the rest of my life. 
I thought this was just how I was stuck in. I thought this was kind of like a, a purgatory I've made for myself that I am stuck watching <laughs> players knock it on and run bad lines once a week for the rest of my life. I'm kind of cursed by my own my own hubris. And yet we've made it. We've got here to the final. We've done it. That's it out the way. Now that we've made it to the recording of this podcast, we don't actually have to watch any of it ever again. No. How does that feel for you then? Do you, do you generally feel relieved about it? Do you feel I... slightly nostalgic or poignant about it? Yeah, I thought I would. But actually, I kind of feel like I have more to say and more to think on this 1987 review. I know what you mean. And I, I feel think... like we kind of haven't covered it as thoroughly as we could have. I know what you're saying. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them being that this World Cup is shorter than the previous one that we covered. This is, mm. you know, about 15 games shorter or something like that. So, yeah, so the original World Cup was fought... Well, not the original World Cup. This is the original World Cup. The first World yep. Cup we covered being 2011 was 48 games. And we covered... We did 48 games plus two retrospective kind of look-back episodes as well, making it 50 mm. episodes. Yeah. Uh, and this World Cup was 32 games. And so we did 33 get- episodes covering the 32 games that happened and one we made up. Yes, absolutely. And so, and so, obviously, yeah, it leads into it being a shorter tournament. There's less time to kind of reflect on it, less time to talk through things, less yeah. time spent with each team where they only played three pool games instead of four. Yeah. And knockouts are largely the same, but that's the only area that does remain the same. That's it. But the thing is, you mentioned all of that. There definitely is more uh, to be unpicked about this World Cup that we don't have access to, whether that's because it's not really on the internet or very well mm. distributed on there, or be- because we're, n- we're probably too young to know a lot about some of these players or some of these teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why often our guests have certainly helped us. So firstly, I would like to thank them throughout this tournament. Yes. For- I-, I don't want to stray too much into the, the- territory of the wrap-up episode which is going to come up after this mm. but you know we've learned a lot through the guests who have uncovered some information for us about certain players teams coaches whatever or the state of generally but, like 1987 in new zealand but uh the interesting and thing marriage in new zealand exactly know, big exactly. topic of debate but that's the thing i think that generally we've taken the piss out of this world cover a lot more than 2011 which is why yes. it feels like we've only just you know scratch the surface on the whole thing because exactly. rugby hasn't been at the forefront and that's fine well the semi-final uh, between australia and france which is yeah. one of the greatest games ever played phenomenal is yeah. kind of the one the one episode where we've taken the game seriously yeah it until is until now yes because i think now well, spoilers right but actually who cares i think this game i think this final this is this was one of going into at the start of the day, this was one of two Rugby World Cup finals I had not watched. Mm. I've never watched the 1999 final through all the way either. Right. Uh, I've never seen 91. 91. I've seen, I've seen the 91. Rest. It's all right. It's all right. There's a reason we won't be doing it next. It's all right. Yeah, I've never seen 1999. That's my kind of like blind spot in general, that World Cup. That's the World Yeah, I know about. nothing about that. I think we have covered um, this. For, yeah, I, same. Yeah. Uh, ben Tune scores in the final. Oh, I know that. He's uh. going to be the most the, the key point that's answered if you ever do World Cup final try scorers, yeah. if that ever comes up. But having now watched this, right, I'm going to say this game is a bit of a belter. I love it. I think that other than that semi-final yeah. that you addressed that we did with Paul Williams, I think this is probably my favourite game in the tournament. I think so. I agree. I yeah. think this is my second favourite game of the, the whole tournament. I think this is fantastic. It's, it's brilliant. And, and there are other games I will have enjoyed, but I don't think, again, as you say, I don't think I've taken a test match this seriously. And like yeah. really kind of like, 
microanalyzed it in my head as I've watched it in that way of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, possession matters, territory matters, pressure matters. These players playing in these positions matter. You know, I've never, I've not sort of had a game that's forced me to think about that as hard as this one has, including that semi-final. Yeah. I think this is the highest intensity game of the tournament by some distance. I'd agree. It's as, the as one a, where you can a tell lot both writing teams are really, on it. Yeah, both teams are really switched on and absolutely one hundred percent going for it. And as like every mistake, every time someone drops the ball, there is yeah. consequence to it. And we've often yes. kind of gone like, oh yeah, well, there's like fifty handling errors per team per game in this World Cup. Whereas in this, it's like no, everything is a lot more carefully considered, and it's. It really kind of paves the way for rugby in the future, I think, that that yeah. way of thinking, you know, it's a World Cup final, so it's daft of There's me to say. A period about two thirds of the way through the first half where France are in their own 22 defending and they keep turning the ball over and clearing it. Yeah. Right? And there's a thing I've said repeatedly in this podcast, in this series, that defending was not interesting or exciting in 1987. It was yes. kind of a necessity. It was a necessary part of the game, but it wasn't something you would enjoy as a fan. Mm-hmm. And there is a period of France defending in this second, in the first half here that is actually engaging it is uh, but for very different reasons because basically and i mean we'll get on to the all blacks tries but most of them come through them actually manage to recycle the ball mm. and so you don't have the same style you have nowadays where a team will work through 20 phases and then you win a turnover and it's huge and it's great and you get to clear the ball more because new zealand would try something ridiculous and you think they're going to score and then france would put in the last ditch tackle or the ball would come loose or something and they'd be able yeah. to clear it but then they'd only clear it as far as the 22 and they'd be on the defense again and it kind of felt like quite a long period of, of pressure, even though they were turning it over and they were clearing it quite often. Yeah, yeah. And that was a hugely engaging period of the game. You're the right. Has not happened previously in this tournament. And, you know, doesn't happen in the second half, but like it burst sure. into life as like an interesting moment of defence during that game. I think it's fascinating. You're 100% right that like France are constantly under the pressure, but there's so many times where they turn the ball over and you go, that is a really good bit of play. That they yeah. then turn it, and they're trying to like gradually inch New Zealand five meters further upfield with each clearing kick. Bearing in mind, you can only kick to touch, you know, in your own twenty-two, but you can carry it back at this point. Yeah. So it's a really fascinating thing of like them trying to kind of figure out the kicking tactics as they go, and New Zealand then going right, we'll go back up. And you're right, there's a real sense of kind of like push and shove between the two teams. Yeah. And yeah, I I really enjoy it. I think that you're right. Every tackle really really matters. Yeah. Yeah, it's and great. The, I think the knockouts in general, we talked about this in Australia's games in particular, where Michael yeah. Lyon was outstanding. Yeah. Kicking has mattered in yes. the, the knockouts of this World Cup, right? Kicking has really mattered. Mm. And the teams, New Zealand, Australia, two best kicking teams in the tournament, France probably third. And that kind of shows they became the three best teams of the tournament yeah. because they were kicking incredibly well. Yeah. And that's mattered as we got further and deeper into the tournament. Definitely. But, right... What I've noticed is there's something we've talked about before when we were talking about this World Cup as well, both, you know, on and off air, is that we don't really mention the forwards. Like, we don't really know what they're doing. (laughs) And I said in one episode, like, the England pack in particular is a bunch of just, like, people who specialism in just being a prick and Brian Moore. Who is a prick, but he can play rugby, you know? And kind of, we love Brian Moore and... You we know, do. Lots of love to me this week, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, I think this was the game where I paid most attention to what the forwards were doing mm, as well. Definitely. And like, I, I paid attention like to the French front row. Do... Yeah. When, oh, mate, Pascal Ondas will get on to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What a... That guy is a legend. <laughs> I, do, I, I didn't realise he got involved <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> what, a, what a hero he is. But yeah, so I think there's... Both packs produce players that will be properly a man of the match contention or mm. something other than like... 
something other than like token mentions because I feel like I've got to mention forwards. You know, that's where it. Mo- yeah. Forwards got most of the nominations in 2011, mm. but it's been backs mostly here because it's so hard to tell Tens what and forwards are actually and doing. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a thing that sometimes happens on this podcast where we'll talk mm. about a few players for the majority of the thing and then I will say my man of the match and it's somebody we've mentioned like twice. Yes. And I go, oh wait, watching the game, he was who I decided was man of the match. And now I realise on this podcast, the people who are watching this, listening to this, haven't seen the game, and it sounds really stupid yeah, that yeah, I've given yeah. this person man of the match. And I kind of had a few of those dotted around this time because I was like, oh, I've mm. not made many notes about, say, Gary Wetton, right? And that's not yeah. to say that he's not going to get man of the match because he might. But sure. I wrote him down on my shortlist, for instance, and I've p- picked mm. a random name out there, right? Because that's happened with a lot of forwards on both sides. I think that's often, you know, players will play well and you write them down as like, oh, well, it's man of the match con- contention, you know? And you think like, yeah. oh, okay. Does that fit the spectacle of the podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the kind of, fast- <laughs> that's kind of very meta as a conversation. It is. But I do think it's going to change how this one plays out as well. Definitely. Because uh, I think there's a lot to get through. I think this is a, it feels, <laughs> it feels like we slogged through an awful lot in those opening few games in that, that first half of the World Cup. That <laughs> Those opening first right, games, like, you the... mean the first 29 games of the tournament? <laughs> I mean, the first 29 games of the tournament. You know, but the games like Australia, England, and, you know, a bunch... There's a load of those games that were just utter dog shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it Australia Island? England-Wales was terrible. I'll tell you what. I had something come up on my, like, uh, suggested on the side of this uh, game on mm. YouTube where it was, like, England v. USA. And I looked at and thought, mm-hmm. I cannot remember that game. I don't remember that game at all. Also, Fiji-Argentina came up on the sidebar. And I do remember that game because that was our introduction to Superboot. And it came up, it was uploaded by World Rugby as the Rugby World Cup 1987. I think I mentioned that at the time. I think you did, yeah. I definitely noticed it. But it fascinated me. The Rugby World Cup. (laughs) Rugby World Cup. One day we should do a podcast dedicated to every game of the Rugby World Cup, I think. (laughs) Tell you what, right? Though, speaking of of intros to the Rugby World Cup. Oh, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about, before we get into the game itself, we finally see the opening titles we do. of the World Cup. Um, do, do you want to play the absolute banger that comes at the start of this coverage? Please, please do. Please do. Okay, here, here we go. So bear in mind, these days we're used to the World in Union, which, as I say, is a banger, yeah. right? We they always that. do different covers of World in Union nowadays. They kind of have epic versions and epic kind of lead-ins, yeah. and, like emotional lead-ins and so on. Yeah. We had not seen over any of the previous 31 games or the one we made up any any signs of the opening of this 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 World Cup and finally it plays. And listen to it. What an absolute certified banger. <laughs> it's a proper 80s anthem this is. It sounds so much like a SNES menu music song. Like an early, like a middle early video game. Yeah. yeah. And over this, right, they play some random clips <laughs> and they seem random. And there's someone that edits rugby videos, right? There are times when I'm watching a video where I just pull, I edit a video where I just pull a moment and I go, yeah, that'll do. And I just put it in, right? <laughs> it seems like the entire title sequence is made up of moments where they went, yeah, that'll do. Like, there's a bit of someone being ankle tapped and falling over short of the try line yeah. and trying to offload badly. There's a moment of someone like barely getting a kick away. Like it's not. <laughs> 
it's not compelling moments. They're not carefully selected as like the Six Nations intro ones are nowadays. What I like as well is that each one is preceded by a country's flag coming up. But the country's <laughs> yeah. flag doesn't necessarily correspond to the clip they're about to show. They also so there's a point where like a Tonga flag show... comes up and then show a Tongan running with the ball. And then a Namibian flag comes up. No, and you see no. Eric Shomp running with the ball. <laughs> I love the show a Namibian flag before Namibia's declared independence as a country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, no, so I listed the countries that they, they show the flag are, right? Okay. I went back and watched this about five times because okay. I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. Right? The countries they show the flag of are Australia, but it's so zoomed in, you can't quite tell if it actually might be the New Zealand flag, <laughs> which I think is sneaky of them. So they can, you know, like, you don't know. If you're a Kiwi watching this, you go, you know what, that might that might be my flag. I'll take it. I'll See, take well, it's it. It's neutral. They, they, they co-hosted yeah. it, so you don't mind. Exactly. <laughs> so they show the Italian flag, which... Fair enough, yeah. they're in the tournament. You they know? certainly are. At this point, they've arguably put the teams from the opening fixture in, in terms of possibly New Zealand and Italy. Yeah, okay. They then put a Great Britain flag, like <laughs> the Union Jack, which I suppose to them going, we've only got limited time, let's get four of the nations out yeah, of the way. Yeah, yeah, let's wrap them which, up together. We've already done two for Light New Zealand Island. Australia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So they've put three flags up and covered seven nations. Very smart. Yeah. And with that, they then showed two clips of Scotland after GB, which is just like, that's the Union Jack, that, that the people that please most, that's great. They then show the Canadian flag and immediately cut to Americans, which I suppose <laughs> oh, they've no. got like, same thing, isn't it? Same thing. It's better they do that than the other way around, because I think that yeah. to stereotype, the Canadian people are less likely to revolt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, it's novel, you know. I bet a lot of Canadians are used to being like, "Oh, are you are you American?" Very few Americans are just assume they're Canadian. Yeah, that's true. But then they show the Japan flag, right? And then after that, they show a really, really zoomed-in American flag where you can only really see the stars on the stars and stripes, so you can't really tell what it is. But I worked out, oh, they just zoomed in super far on the American flag over the top. So they didn't need to conflate them with Canada at all. And then, of course, they played the most bizarre flag, everyone's favourite flag, which is the IRB flag. And you have a moment <laughs> of going, what's this nation? Then you realise, oh yeah. no, Phone it's up my favourite country. Verify what flag <laughs> it is. It's my favourite flag, the International Rugby Board flag, the filleted fish logo, as they called it themselves, which they play out, they then fade out, and it says, World Cup Rugby. <laughs> Yeah, not Rugby World Cup, it's World Cup Rugby was the thing that yep. that struck me. With a really inflated ball on there as well. Yeah. Which yeah, I like yeah, the yeah. look of. But then, right, it zooms out and we see the crowd. We see the huge packed crowd. So yes. Eden Park, where it's being played at that point, had a capacity of 48,000, right? Well, 48,035 right. was the capacity. They reckon... About 50,000 were in the ground that day. Hmm, okay. So when they show the crowd, you can see there's moments where people are just sat on the banisters. People are leaning against the sides. They have people sat on the steps. They did not bother to keep it to seating. Like, they just pack everyone into the ground they can. And I absolutely love that. I was going to say, a few security guards definitely took tips that day. Somebody's <laughs> yeah, saying, yeah. I'll give you 20 quid if you just let me walk in. And they went, go on then, just don't sit in anyone's seat. That is probably what happened. Yeah. This was yeah, the 80s. Said, there's, people like, there's people against on the railings across the back just sat leaning on them, which is not safe <laughs> at all. 
No, of course but not. But it happened. Funny you should say 20 quid as well. Yeah. Take a guess how much tickets cost for this World Cup final. They were all 20 one quid. Price. Nope. Well, okay. They were adjusted for inflation, about £42 in British pounds now. Okay, okay. Which That's was good. the most expensive tickets of the tournament. But also, right, compared to the tickets for, I mean, this year's World Cup, the cheapest tickets go for about £92. So about £50 mm-hmm. more, more than twice the price. The tickets for 2015 World Cup were started about £150 for the final. And that's actually pre-inflation. Yeah. I haven't checked where that is with inflation. So, you know, the, the, the value of the thing has gone up enormously. Yeah. But also, speaking You of got crowds, your Rugby World Cup 2023 final ticket for about 700 quid, am I right? Oh, I think it's about 400. I think it's about 400. Okay. I don't know where I pulled um, 700 I would have from. paid literally any amount of money. Like, I'm just... Yes. It was, it's like the top of my bucket list to go to a World Cup final. Um, you would have paid all the money in the world for that if you had it i would have stolen it personally from caris williams now she's declared for wales so i owe like half of it i think because i'm half welsh yeah yeah so i think that's that's how it works i get you would have paid half the money in the world yeah 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 Yeah, i'm not giving all of it well that's that's the objective of this podcast for us to get half the money in the world yeah i mean yeah and i'm i'm not giving it all to bernard laporte you know like you know what he's gonna (laughs) do with it He's going to shove it up his bum. <laughs> he will. He's notorious for doing that. You've got the previous yeah. chairman of the Rugby World Cup who used to wank over pigeons. And now the future president of World Rugby. And Every time French you give him coin, is, coin ends up, up his bum. in an anus. Yeah. He's just constantly shoving money up his bum. Someone stop him. It's the one. Someone... It's, the, it's his one downfall. Of you know Bernard, how... Bernard yeah, last year he was the investigated by the French authorities. In his anus. Yeah, he was yeah. investigated by the French authorities for financial misgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the fact he tried he he tried to shove an entire bank up his bum, and they were like, "No, this is this still counts as bank robbery." Like it, you, you committed it, he, a heist technically. It doesn't matter that it's in your bum; you have no intention of spending it. He was put into a disciplinary to explain all of this, and he denied it. But then he farted, and just loads of just. Euros started flying out of his trousers. <laughs> He's so thankful for contactless payment because chip and pin was a nightmare for him. He got so many paper cuts. This is there's a, a, there's a delightful rabbit mental hole. image for you. Yes. So right, we were talking about the crowd, the crowd for the we Rugby were. World Cup final in 1987, yes. the year. And <laughs> <laughs> the other interesting thing I want to add here, right? So they estimated that. The audience watching this for this game, right, was around 100 million. They estimated around 100 million people watched the World Cup final, which was broadcast around 6am French time, around 5am UK time. So, you know, like, a doable time, but not ideal. Yeah. Like, it was, it wasn't two in the morning. It wasn't, like, a terrible, terrible time. It was early, really early on Saturday morning, and it was a World Cup final. So, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, but they estimated 100 million people watched that. In terms of the growth of the tournament, which is something we talked about a lot over this podcast, about how the tournament has just spiralled and grown and exponentially just expanded beyond what it was at this point. The point they kind yeah. of only had, they kind of only had one sponsor in Steinlager, but we saw <laughs> yeah, a Steinlager lot of Steinlager are everywhere. We certainly yeah. did. Hey, I quite fancy a Steinlager. Now you mention it, do you? Should we go for one. Yeah, after I really this fancy podcast? a Yeah, oh, a Mazda. I really fancy a Mazda. Mazda. I could really do drinking a Mazda. Yeah. Look, you have some petrol and I'll have some lager. We'll both end up in so, the same state. Sam Lager. So they reckon around 100 million watched the 87 final, right? 
around 857 million watched the 2019 final. Wow. So that's... The thing is, over 35-ish years, that's Mm. not like an insanely drastic difference to say how stupidly organized this tournament was. Yeah. But it's gr- basically rugby has grown eight times in popularity. In yes. The course of the last 35 years is basically what we're looking at. We've got a sure. metric for that essentially. And that's 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 a good stat, you know, that we can actually yeah. compare that. Yeah. The other thing is it's quite hard to verify that. That was an estimate made before the game. They reckoned 100 million people going to tune in. It's quite hard to get comprehensive figures for how many I reckon 100 million people have afterwards. listened to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think they were basing on how many people were watching around the world and watching the other games and watching the semis and so on. Yeah. You know, yeah. So on and so forth. But, you know, I've looked at the stats of people who've listened to the old podcast. I don't really do that often. Occasionally I do. Was it? And that has it grown means, around eight times? Are I we going to get around eight times the listeners when we do 2019? Is that what we're saying? That's the plan. That's the plan. But the 100 million of that, they're estimating around 2 million people in New Zealand were going to watch this, which is an insane figure when you consider the population of New Zealand at the time. A million and a half or something they were talking about. Mm -hmm. But if you start looking at how the All Blacks treated this final or how New Zealanders in general treated this final, you get a really, really drastic picture of how much things changed. Oh. And it's something we talked about with Jamie Wall on a previous episode. And we've kind of discussed in pieces around this World Cup that the New Zealand public had fallen out of love with the All Blacks, you know, over the the early 80s. They were no longer the kind of beloved force they once were. Mm. And a lot of that was kind of them having rough periods. They had a countless number of scandals leading into the year before this World Cup, the infamous Cavaliers tour. For anyone unaware, the tour of South Africa that wasn't sanctioned by the New Zealand Rugby Union, by World Rugby. Of course. They weren't allowed to tour. They weren't allowed to tour under the name New Zealand or the All Blacks. So they toured under the name the Cavaliers. But they sent basically a New Zealand national team out to South Africa to play them. And it was a hugely controversial thing at the time. It was during the peak of apartheid. Yeah. And hence why South Africa weren't invited to this tournament. Yeah, it would have been after the flower bomb incident that we've previously discussed. Yes. Which will have been a big reason, presumably, of why they thought we can't go back there. This is too dangerous. Yeah. And so before this tournament, New Zealand kind of basically rebooted the entire team. Hence why there's such a young look to all of this side. They're Mm. largely kind of kids. And a lot of these players go on to play for a very long time after this. You know, you have players here who would go on to play in the 95, even 99 World Cups throughout this team. Yeah. Dotted throughout the entire thing. David Kirk as the captain kind of was that, that very like school head boy look. Yeah. And was kind of taken to heart as almost like... I think the best way I think I've described him is this on a previous episode, but he's kind of like the boy you hope your daughter will bring home. Yeah, yeah. This was actually his penultimate game for the All Blacks, David Kirk. Hmm. So what he was retired his game? in uh, he played Norse International after this. Okay, because they had okay. them in 1987 post World Cup because they played the World Cup in May and June hmm. for whatever reason. This this game was actually played on our mum's birthday. There's a fun fact for you. Oh. Anyway. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, do you want to look at the New Zealand team then? Sure. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, New Zealand only make one change, which is they bring back in Michael Jones, who, again, at this point was a youngster who had kind of been drafted into this tournament. Yeah. I think he's probably one of the standout players in this tournament for New Zealand and has mm. been. And as you say, he's a young gun, but at this point they'll have gone, he's done enough to prove himself that he's actually he's worthy of starting above. The, they had Zinzan Brook, of course, play earlier in the tournament, but he was also mm. very inexperienced at this stage. And Mark Brook Cowden, of course, played the semi-final for New Zealand. So otherwise, it's as you'd expect from the All Blacks. They've got yeah. the, the the big guns. You know, you've got Fitzpatrick, you've got both Wettons, you've got Shelford all in the pack. Big legendary names of All Black rugby. Grant Fox stays in the 10 jersey, not that that was ever in doubt. Stanley and Taylor in the centres, who've played solidly all tournament. Kerwin, Green and Gallagher, back three as well who, again, their results have been excellent, so... So, one note about this New Zealand team, right? We've talked all the way about how there's a huge theme of fathers of modern players throughout this team. Correct. Right? Throughout all the teams in this World Cup, right? I found out today that John Gallagher is Matt Gallagher's dad. You're joking. John Gallagher is Matt Gallagher's dad. The Saracens and Munster Munster fullback. I had absolutely no idea that his son went on to play for Munster Saracens, now Bath. Bless him. The thing is, right, I never would have thought that's an extremely common name in rugby circles, right? Like, there's as many Gallagher's in rugby as there are in Oasis. And yet, I am... Very shocked to find out they're related. Both play the same position. How do yeah, we exactly. not know this? In fairness, How has this I always thought Matt Gallagher was English slash Irish. Because yeah, I'm not thinking he's Irish qualified. Which, well, he's, so well, yeah, yeah, so yeah, is yeah. John Gallagher. So, so John Gallagher was born in London okay. to an Irish father, then moved to New Zealand as a kid. Okay. And then, right, later on down the line, moved to New Zealand when he was a teenager. Largely to play rugby, because he wanted to. Right. Went on to join the police in Wellington, became a policeman officer, and then became an all-black. Mm. And do you want the other great stat about John Gallagher? Please. Never lost a test match. Wow. Never lost a test match. Blimey, that's a hell of a stat. How many caps did he played, get? Played for the all-blacks for six years, never lost once. Over a grand total of 41 games. That's insane. That's surely untouchable by 
anyone at international level. Oh, okay. He passed up. He played four, 41 games, but only 18 tests. Okay. So still, it's one of those though. weird amateur era things. Still. Still, uh, still, 18 games unbeaten is unbelievable. Yeah. A four, you know, 41 full games as well. Like, he, I he would to see it be... I'd be very surprised if another player in the men's game achieved that in the future. Adam Beard got to like 16. Yeah, but Beaten. he didn't get to 18. <laughs> no, very He close, then lost though. two in a row when he got there. Fake news. John Gallagher then signed for Leeds in Rugby League and has lived in, lived oh, in the see. since. Hence, Matt Gallagher growing up in England, playing under-20s rugby for England. Played in a World Cup winning under-20s team, actually. And then obviously is Irish yeah. qualified as well, as through his grandfather, who was John Gallagher's father. Yes. For some reason, that never came up. We never knew about that. Do you want no, another great fact I about never... remember the All Blacks team? Go on. Murray Pierce, right? The second row, okay? Retired from rugby, yeah. became an insurance person. Then retired from that and spent about 20 years doing stadium tours of Eden Park. What? So he went on to... He did the stadium tours of Eden Park. He became like... That was what he did. He was... Oh! A, an, an all-black they hired to do stadium tours. And he would kind of walk, wander class. around being like... You know, I'm I, not going to lie. Day, I played That's... in the World Cup final in, in my day. Look, we've both done the Millennium Stadium Tour... Uh, Principality yeah, yeah, yeah. Stadium Tour. You've done it twice. I've done it once. And I tell you what, that sounds a lot more engaging than Derek from Cardiff doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. telling you about, oh yeah, and this is where Ross Moriarty laces his boots up. And instead this goes, oh yeah, this is where I won the fucking World Cup. Like, yep. here's my winner's medal if you want to look at it. He'd also do, like, tours for, you know, like, hospitality and for people that, like, paid a certain amount. That's they could so do, like, cool. A tour where he'd take them around and show them, like, stuff in various That's rugby cities where the All Blacks were playing. Yeah. Yeah. Having an actual All Black do it. It's like, oh, you get to meet this guy who won the fucking World Cup. That's yeah. so, so good. And like, by I this point, you know, he was in like his late 40s or something and he was kind of yeah. like a bit past his best and whatever you, but like was a kind of engaging and funny guy and could mm. could do that. Like, I bet that was a lot of fun. And I think he still does the odd one, but like, it's not sure, full time yeah. anymore. Now he's in his 60s. Yeah. But I'm not going to look, when you first said he does stadium tours, I thought you meant in the way Ed Sheeran does stadium tours. <laughs> and then he said, of Eden Park. And I was going to say, that's not a tour. And then I realised that it was much more localised. <laughs> I love the thought of him going around, just holding his World Cup winners' medal, going, "You're right, there you go." Yeah, this nice one. Just does, a, just does like a you know sells th- out tw- thirty-five year residency of Eden Park and nowhere yeah. else, and it counts he as a stadium tour. He money on tour. Yeah. Hey, we should we should go to that. We should get P money back happens. and ask him about Murray Pierce someday. But we should. We really Murray should. Pierce. Yeah, <laughs> one day, one day, we'll get him back. One day. Get him back. Yeah. Not today, though. So, yeah, it's a full, full, full team of great, great people. Richard Lowe doesn't get on, he's on the bench, but both his daughters have now represented New Zealand in Olympic rowing, uh, Jessica and Olivia. Wow, so never knew that. that's a cool little fact for you. Me neither, me neither. I did a lot of research onto this New Zealand team today, and it turns out a bunch of the players weren't playing, so I haven't got really a chance to talk about it that much. <laughs> But that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. Tell you what, right? Two very contrasting stories of players who didn't play much in this World Cup. Okay? Right. From looking at the wider 26-man squad that they had at the time. 26 was the squad size mm-hmm. at the time. Albert Anderson, okay, 
who yes. is the second most famous All Black to come out of Southbridge Rugby Club. Do you know who okay. the first is? Nope. Dan Carter. Yeah, fair enough. They produced two All Blacks, one of which is an all-time great, and the other one did Both also win the Cup World winners. Cup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He only played one game, but he still won a World Cup, so fair play. Yep. He played just the one game against Fiji in this World Cup, went on to play for them against Australia in the following tour the next year, eventually retired with six caps. But when asked about his time at the World Cup, he said, well, someone had to drink all the Stein lager they were supplying us. My man! My man! Well, I'm writing him down as player of the tournament contention. <laughs> However, right, complete opposite end of the spectrum in terms of approaches to not playing... Bruce mm-hmm. Deans, okay, who died a few years ago of of cancer, um, aged right. fifty eight, which is horrible. Oh, that's oh, that's horrible. That's awful. Yeah, which is tragic and yeah. Mm. But he was the second choice scrum half, kind of understudy to David Kirk. Didn't get okay. to play because they played Kirk in every game because he was kind of you know the key man and he was kind of the focal point of the team and so on. Yeah, but did go on to play again and went on to coach the USA national team as well after retiring. Okay, that's nice, but. Yeah, he said that he felt it was his job to push the other guys to be the best they could be and for me to be the best team man I could be. And That's he took good. Real pride we like that. In, yeah, he said he took. Re- he was really proud of his role within the team and he felt like he really did contribute even though he didn't get on the field, which I think is amazing. Fantastic. That's really cool. Like, that's brilliant. It's something we've talked about that's, a lot. That's it's son kind of, of a good rugby player. Like, yeah, like the great like Lions who don't play a test match, you know? It's yeah. the equivalent of that. Yeah, and in a World Cup where you're not allowed non-enforced substitutes that is the exact yeah. equivalent exactly exactly and he he really really did that and he really really as he said you know was that's brilliant about how he contributed we'll um, come on to it other... but at the end of the game david kirk does say thank you to all of the wider squad members yeah. said this is a whole squad effort which is nice because it wasn't but i'm joking obviously <laughs> but it's really cool knowing that there are people like that who did genuinely pull their weight despite not getting on yeah. the field. And of the all-black coaches while we're going through this team, right? Mm. Brian Lahore, the head coach, who died just before the 2019 World Cup. Yeah, But at Legend. the far riper age of 78. Yeah, head coach, World Cup winner, first World Cup winner, as well as captain the all-blacks between 1966 and 1970. Yeah. He also went on to, as well as chairing the Hillary Commission of Sporting Agency, he also was still a selector involved in the all-blacks in the Graham Henry era. And eventually wow. from being involved in rugby in 2011. Fair like, play. That's how long I mean, it is a little bit jobs for the boys-ish, and I love it. <laughs> yeah. But he... so Again, it's like the fact they're clinging on to Graham Henry still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so he he was head coach for another few years after this, but he remained involved with the All Blacks for another 24 years. Blimey. Which is mad. Whereas, that's right... That's strong innings. Yep. Whereas his assistant coach, Alex Wiley, right, who is now 77, okay, went on to replace Lahore as head coach in 88 the following year, mm-hmm. after Lahore retired but still remained involved. Yeah. The All Blacks played really, really well. He coached them until the 91 World Cup, where when they got knocked out, he got moved aside. And he then went on to coach Argentina in the 1999 World Cup, where they famously knocked out Ireland. Mm-hmm. In what round would it have been where they knocked out Ireland? I don't know. Um, like, how, how it, was, it, was it the semis? Um, oh, no, 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 no. Something like that. Quarterfinals, uh, I think. 
Quarterfinals. Right, quarterfinals. Something with final on the end. Has happened, yeah. However, right, after retiring from coaching after that a few years ago, he took up a new sport in lawn bowls. Right? What? And he went on to not just start playing lawn bowls, but start playing lawn bowls competitively. To okay, the point in okay. which, right, he was the key player in the Woodland Jets winning the televised event, right? The New Zealand Bowls 5 National League Final, which was broadcast live on National Kiwi TV. Alex Wiley, the former All Blacks coach, went on to become a National Standard Bowls player in his 70s. Add that to the queue after the Rugby World Cup. (laughs) We're going to cover it eventually. That's remarkable. A man of many, many talents. Might just be two talents, but he's very good at the pair of them. Yeah. Yeah. The other Blimey. assistant coach, John Hart, went on to, again, coach the All Blacks as head coach in 1999 for that World Cup. Mm-hmm. He then went on after that to become involved in New Zealand golf. And he's now a high yeah. up in New Zealand golf organization. Wow. So that is quite a comprehensive guide to the All Blacks that I felt like I wanted to give because I did a lot of research. <laughs> and I think it's worth yeah, talking absolutely. through. Do you want to talk us through the French team? Yes. So as they come up on the broadcast, the commentator, and again, this is Keith Quinn and Earl Curtin that we've got here on the comms. Yep. They decide to bring up that France have actually gone for a very strong team in this game. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. I will stress as well, before reading out this French team, I'm very much of the opinion that these are the two best teams in the tournament that we have in this final. I completely agree. Yeah, and I'm really glad to see them play against each other. There's a real clash of styles, and it's great. But, yes, so the French pack is huge. And so we'll po- <laughs> yeah, kind of enlightened as we go on to Andars, De Broca, and Lamparou in the front row. Alex Champ is a really imposing figure in the back row as well. Laurent so, Rodriguez okay. has played well in the pool stages. I love Eric Champ because... Mm. He is not the image, the model hard man in rugby, right? <laughs> he looks like look Bob Ross. <laughs> he has like this like thick mop of curly hair and he's got skinny arms and he's kind of like not that imposing a figure. He's like, he's quite tall. He's got quite a cute that, looking face. Yeah. Like he's, and like he's he like tries kinda... to look threatening, but he has just quite a sweet face. He... He he looks like he wouldn't be out of place in an Eric Roma movie, like as the best friend who finds out like his friends being cheated on, you know. Like he's got kind of like he's got the energy of someone who's really like. There's just there's something like I would believe it if I looked at him and found out he played World of Warcraft. Yeah, yeah I believe that even in '87 in France. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Famously, they don't do World of Warcraft in France. It's called World D Warcraft. No, that's what it's called in the Netherlands. Okay, but here's the thing about Eric Champ, right? He does not give off hard man energy at all to glance at him. And then you see him square up to, like, Buck Shelford. And he's yeah. suddenly terrifying. Yeah, like, he's yeah. a man who is scary only, only in aura. Like, he has this, like, mm. horrifying aura the moment he wants to give it off. But he is not threatening at all to glance at it. Like, if you saw a photo of him, you would not believe that he's one of the all-time great rugby hard men. And yet, to see him play, like, they, they cut to him during the hacker before this game. And mm. you're almost like, he is scarier than the war dance. 
like seeing <laughs> that man once. He's like a weeping angel. Once you're in contact with him, yeah, it's suddenly yeah, like, yeah. oh shit, this is this is life threatening here, rather than just something that's staring at me. Yeah, yeah. By the way, quickly the French backline. You got Blanco oh, yeah, in please. there. They they leave in Didier Campbell and Bello on the wing, which I'm really glad of. He really deserved it. He's played well in the whole World Cup. Uh, Sella, of course, in the centres, and then they stick with Maynell at fly half. Yeah, the company Bebezier. Well, Maynell feels like the kind of big call to me. You know, Guy Laporte yeah. had played very well over the tournament, Laporte, played in the semi-final, the quarter-final, yeah. played really tough. well. Then got Didn't dropped. Didn't even make the bench, Laporte. No. Really and he just dropped him out of the team that. entirely. Yeah, he played very well all tournament, I think, when he was in. Yeah, I feel like that's quite a controversial decision. That is kind of the the big call there. Otherwise, it's largely as was. You know, they largely largely stick as they did. Yeah. We have... The one other change, I guess, from this, the one change from the semi-final in that pack is John Condom comes back in, who'd had a bit of a niggle he in does. the semi-quarter-final. Yeah. So he comes back into the team, which is, I think, too a important to play not players. to. Yeah, yeah, not to yeah. take the risk on. I think with Maynell, I don't think he has a bad game, but I think if they were allowed, they would have subbed on Laporte for him in the second half. Yes, yeah. Because like they will have needed somebody to just really like just grab the game. And Maynell yeah. didn't quite do that in the same way Grant Fox did. And you would have actually wanted to roll the dice in a World Cup final on that a little bit. As I say, he didn't play badly by any stretch. But I think that's kind of my assessment on what would happen in yeah. a modern game where they could have, where they had the option to do that. And in but the yeah. case of injury, they had Pierre Bebezier, the scrum half covering, who, as he was known, le directeur du jouet. Mm. Wee oui, wee oui, wee oui. of play. Yep. They they gave him a lot of nicknames through this game, the commentators. Yeah. There was a lot of them in in multiple languages. It was fascinating. Rodolphe Modin, who really impressed in the one game he played and the one game he it, that didn't exist. Yeah. Stays on the bench. Obviously never goes on to play for France again after this. We didn't get the Jean Marc Duzon situation as them shoving him on anyway. Cowards. Pure cowards. cowards. Absolute cowards. You were about to talk about the hacker. So mm. before the hacker has even started, Keith Quinn says on the comms, okay, this is a really exciting moment. The All Blacks are about to do the hacker and France, the absolute fucking madmen, are about to challenge them. So clearly somebody had told the commentary team, by the way, France are going to mm. challenge them. This hacker isn't, isn't going to be done unopposed, right? And we've covered in the 2011 final France challenged the hacker so for those who yeah. have forgotten or those unaware they started off holding hands in an arrowhead formation and then walked up to the halfway line and New Zealand obviously absolutely shat themselves at that prospect <laughs> however Some if French you think that was walking forwards exactly if you think that was a challenging opposition to the hacker wait till you've seen what's happened on this one because it was them standing a respectful 20 metres away up to where the, the legal line probably is. Apart from Eric Schomp, who then walks three steps forward and tries his best to look threatening, but he's got too sweet a face for it to be really that bad. And the rest <laughs> no, of them no, look no, slightly no, 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 timid, no, no. and the Orplex don't notice. No, but I think, I think there is something in the fact that actually, when you look at that team as they do the hacker, right? Mm. France stands the United line. If you look yeah. at virtually every other team, they just kind of stand and they watch. And like Italy in that opening game did not line up; they did not work yes. together. Wales were just kind of stood about. Like France stand up and they. Stand I do together agree. And they go, "We are challenging you. We are." They here make to a point you. 
on the comms of the fact that they all like made eye contact with them as they did it yes. rather than yeah. just spectating. It was a, like, no, our heads are up. We don't look away from them. Almost like we're meeting the hacker. We're respecting the hacker rather than just we're observing it, which yes. I guess in translation, that is a challenge as it were. It's just yeah. funny because it, you compare it to like the whales iconic standoff and the wallabies warming up and getting absolutely but pumped was, afterwards. I think- I think it was the start of that. You know, it's kind of the first time someone did yeah. that. Like, this is obviously, is. this tournament is the first time New Zealand performed the hacker at home, right, on yeah. home turf. Like, it was not that common. It wasn't the kind of fixed point in rugby that it is now. Yeah. And so seeing France stand and challenge it and seeing Eric Schomp, my sweet potato pie, stare it down and, as I say, mm. hold eye contact with the All Blacks is a yeah. great moment. And I think that is... It like is. A, I think this is also the best hacker of the tournament and probably the yeah, best hacker is. considering they were pretty much taught to do the hacker properly before this tournament it was kind of a matter of pride they were taught in this year and a bit the year beforehand to do the hacker because they were doing it for the first time in, in new zealand yeah rather than overseas where kind of no one really cared it was kind of like oh look the novel thing they did the little dance now it's like no we need to respect the culture this comes from mm. and also it was led by players like the wettons and buck shelford and so on wanting this to be taken seriously and teaching them the hacker and making them learn it properly. I think this is up to this point, up until 1987, the best hacker there's ever been. Probably. I would need to go back and verify with all of the other hackers that have ever happened up to That's this point. That's what we do instead of this tournament. We go back <laughs> and do a hacker retrospective. Yeah, all right then. All right. But yeah, no, I do agree with that. And as you say, like, it's not like Chomp was going to go up and smack David Kirk around the chops as a challenge, was it? No. And so they had to start somewhere, see what they could respectfully get away with and then pave the way for other other teams to go sli- push the, the rules slightly further from there on out. Yeah. And that is cool in itself. It's the first time anyone's um, ever done this, as you say. I'm a huge fan of Earl on the commentary, Earl Curtin, our best friend, saying, of course, yeah. the key man to watch for France is then listing five players. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't wrong, though. He said like Not Blanco, Sella, Chomp, Condom, like Bebezier, something like that, you know. He he named five yeah. good players, so... The other really cool thing about the lead into this game, right? They have a helicopter over the stadium. Filming. I could hear the helicopter all game. It, so yeah. it was, that was that was where the, the aerial view was coming from, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a helicopter yeah, okay. with them. Like, super old school. Like, before they had spider cams and before they had drone cams and everything. Yeah. They had a helicopter... Filming the game hovering above. For the first time ever, there is a a bird's eye view on Eden Park. So nobody's ever seen Eden Park from that angle before. No birds have ever been over Eden Park. No, there was a lot of birds on the field. Some birds come around the second half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of them. There was a proper pitch invasion of seagulls at one point. Dominic Bird didn't exist yet. He'd never been to Eden Park. I'm afraid not. But, of course... We're not far away from the kickoff now, right? And there is yeah. a moment where I get a little bit nostalgic and I go like, oh, you know what? This World Cup, as much as it's been shit, it's been all right. You know, yeah, the amount yeah, of yeah, times yeah, yeah. where we thought like, oh, yeah, crazy shit happens. You know, we've had Fabio ring on the field and stuff. We've had like people knock each other out. We've had the Constantine brothers. We've had like shit players that have been really funny to the piss out of. We've had players who've been shit and then actually turned out to be world class. And I thought I had a moment where I was really nostalgic. And not one second later did this piece of commentary start. 
Well, I've heard of a dog on the field, but this time we have a rooster on the field at Eden Park before the Rugby World Cup final. And I thought, holy shit! Because he said, well, I've heard of a dog on the field. And I was like, Do you... Me too. dude, that's what <laughs> no, I was thinking. No, Did, what if, Can we read out our notes in sync as per, as per tradition? Okay? okay, okay, okay. Okay, one, two, three. Rooster! Oh, shit! On the Rooster on the pitch! It's on the pitch! It happens. And then I've got, there's a fucking chicken playing in the Rugby World Cup final! Chicken just runs onto the pitch with like the French flag draped around its ankles, like tied yeah, to its yeah. legs. They've got the French flag. Like there was, when I was thinking about all this this nostalgic shit, right? I was thinking like, oh yeah, but it's the final, right? So yeah, I need to get yeah. that on my head because I'm just watching a rugby World Cup final. This in itself is iconic. I need to leave all that shit about dogs in the past for an hour and a half while I watch this, right? Yeah, I need yeah, to just yeah, think course. about the fact this is the Rugby World Cup final. And then when the commentary of the game, of the entire game, starts with the sentence, well, I've seen a dog on the field, I got so excited. And then this little fella I couldn't appears. believe it. You could not And that's the great this. thing. You can hear him this on the little... microphone as well. The chicken, yeah. You can hear the chicken on the microphone. Going, bark, bark. And like, he just runs around the pitch for a while. He just runs around the pitch. He just has a little yeah. nice go, like running around the French team, wishing them all luck. It's like yeah, how they yeah. have a visiting dignitary from uh, the, the New Zealand Rugby Union and also the president of the International Rugby Board both come out and shake everyone's hands. And then they have a chicken to represent France. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just for equality. It's that great point where there's like all of the officials are meeting in the middle and uh, mm. they all have this like elaborate handshake, you know, the touch judges and referees like, oh, yeah, this is a big moment. And the commentators are saying, like, oh, this is this is great, you know, seeing all of this. And the referees are then clearly going like, well, we have to wait for this chicken to come off the field first. <laughs> of course, with this all in mind, should we give the chicken a name? We've got to, haven't we? Well, it's very, very obviously a French chicken, right? It literally, it's got the French, French flag. On. Yeah, yeah. Is tied to its leg, you know, yeah. like it is so French, unbelievably French. The thing that the thing that I think about this because obviously that's that's a very deliberate thing that it's come as like a symbol of France, right? Is yeah. this an actual kiwi chicken, or have they flown this chicken over from France? What do you reckon? I wonder that because it's clearly brought in by a French fan, right? Yeah, like it's clearly a French fan has gone. I'm going to sneak a chicken into a game. This has have happened countless times chicken? since. It has There's been yeah. countless this examples of chickens getting happened. into. The... Yeah. And it's not certainly not the last. Happened two thousand and seven World Cup as well. Like it, it happens. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it happened in every game in this tournament. Actually, they've got a chicken in the ground. I'm pretty sure that's come up. But you know, the chicken doesn't get onto the pitch in the World Cup final. You know, that only happens once, as far as we know. Yes, we've got a lot more World Cups to cover. I was really, really caught by surprise when there was a chicken on the field, and he was he was rampant. There's, yeah, he was just running so like, running round like people trying to gather him up. Yeah, so basically, he runs on, and someone in chinos chases after him a bit, <laughs> and then he like he does like a circle round them and runs back, and a guy tries to kick him. A guy tries <laughs> to trip him up. Yeah, a guy try- just sticks his leg out trying to leg up a chicken, and the chicken's just like, "Nah, mate, I'm having none of that." Does a proper Shane Williams style hurdle of the ankle tap, and just cr- cracks on, carries on running down the sideline. If you pause it right before the chicken disappears out of shot, right before he runs off and they cut away, right? There is a guy dressed in a suit the colours of the French flag. 
And what's the betting that's the guy that snuck him on? Like, you can just about see that guy. They're all chasing the chicken. Round, and like, this is the halfway line they're on. Like, they're chasing Mm. the, like, the two teams are stood on the sidelines waiting for them to get this chicken away from the spot where he'll kick off. Yeah, yeah, because those two teams are there like, we're here to win the Rugby World Cup. And then there's somebody on the sideline going, oh no, there's a chicken on the field. We didn't possibly plan for this to happen. And like what when it cuts back to the referee, Kerry Fitzgerald, who is yeah. stood there kind of waiting, he is staring at the sideline, waiting for the chicken to be off the pitch yeah. so he can go over and tell Grant Fox he's allowed to kick off <laughs> the Rugby World Cup final, I will stress. It's phenomenal. It's very good. But then the, the best bit, the best bit final. to jump ahead a bit, right? The chicken comes back. He does. He does. In the he's second very half. brief in his return, yes. Yeah. He immediately gets caught by a steward who carries him off under one arm as he's kind of like flailing under his arm. So somebody did a short-term fix and got him briefly Mm. off the pitch, but not exactly under control. He went off for a HIA and then came back on. At some point, someone probably got a disciplinary about the fact that they'd done the whole animal control thing, then took their eye off the chicken to watch the rugby, (laughs) turn around and go, Oh, shit! (laughs) The chicken's back on the pitch. Tom, you had one job, and it was to make sure there were no chickens on the field during the Rugby World Cup final. And that's it. And I can't believe you failed twice. (laughs) I I have a point really in my notes in the second half. He's in a really intense bit of the game. And have put France in their own 22. New Zealand attacking well. France give away a penalty. Oh, the chicken's back. Grant Fox lines <laughs> up a kick and go. <laughs> but that's it. The commentator's then like, oh, the chicken's back. Grant Fox yeah. not distracted by that chicken. Clearly no. not a true fox. Otherwise he would have been. He would have chased ah. after that chicken all day. Uh, like somebody should have on the sideline. But... <laughs> I'm very glad that they didn't, you know. I'm really, really grateful for the really poor animal control department at Eden Park in yeah. 1987. <laughs> Bring this back. Yeah, I want honestly. like a turtle on the pitch in 2023. That, that's it. We've both purchased tickets like, to that final. If there yeah. are no animals on the field of play <laughs> at any point, I'm going to be very, very disappointed. Yeah, and like Dewey Lake doesn't count. No, no. That's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, again, just blown away by the fact this happened in the final. But I love it. More of it. I absolutely, absolutely love it. And this leads us towards the kickoff for the Rugby World Cup final, 1987. Yep. The very yeah. first one. An iconic moment as Grant Fox kicks the ball off for the first time. And the commentators say like, oh yeah, you know, I want you to take in this moment. And so I did. As he kicked yeah. it off, I paused and thought, this is cool. There's a chicken on the sideline. Yeah. And I press play. And you know what? You forget about the chicken pretty quickly. You do. As we said, this is a really good game. Great game. Great like, game. That was why it somehow managed to overshadow the chicken on the pitch, which we didn't name. We didn't name Jean. Jean. Jean the chicken. Jean the, ki- Jean the chicken. There we go. Very easily done. Very easily Jean done. Chicken. Jean, Jean Chiquen. Is Poulet the the uh, French for chicken? Maybe? No, yeah, but his name's Jean Chiquen. Yeah, yeah, just 
You wouldn't ask me like, oh, yeah, like, oh, is it the French for human? If you're talking about human, no, like his name is Jean Chiquet. Good point. I never asked what the Italian for dog is, did I? No. Anyway, so yeah, Grant Fox kicks it long. Maynell gives quite a shoddy reply to the first kickoff. If I'm completely honest, yeah, but. First line up's thrown not straight, so it's no trouble. And this is where it begins, the whole back and forth thing of France winning a set piece, clearing it long. So I think something interesting about that first line out, as you said, we went in, I certainly went in, I think you said the same thing, far more analytical than we have in other games. And you could feel right. the intensity. And I think the crowd being so huge and so loud. Yeah, it was a great crowd. And Earl Curtin said he's never heard Eden Park this loud. Mm. And you have the same thing coming through all the All Blacks when you read them, you know, in autobiographies and interviews and so on since. All saying it's the loudest and the biggest crowd I ever played in front of. All talking about how huge an occasion it was. Yeah. And you kind of feel that. And that tunes you into the game so much more. That kind of sense of occasion that this game really had. I noticed that first line out, right? Both teams lined out in exactly the same order. So it's closest to the touchline... One, then four, then five, then eight, then six, then seven at the tail. That's Both teams' really numbers satisfying. exactly the same, marked up, I, exactly the same. As you say, goes not straight, leads to a scrum, and France smash it. Yeah, they absolutely murder them at scrum, and this is sets a bit of a precedent at this point. You think mm. France are taking absolutely no shit from New Zealand? Like as soon as they clear no. the ball, and New Zealand try running these fancy moves, they very early on run one where it's a switch in midfield with Joe Stanley coming like on the angle, like at pace and against most teams, he would have ended up with an arm tackle and breaking straight through. And instead Francis go, no, 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 no. You can't just run a move that simple and get through us. And they do (laughs) that. And then like they win the ball back straight away from literally first phase, clear it again. And New Zealand then go, okay, I see what you're doing. You can defend that. Try Kerwin, you knobs. And they, were comp- they had no trouble. They defended John Kerwin. And it's like, yeah. holy shit, they deserve to be in the final. Well, hold on, we're going we're, we're gonna to need to try putting a fullback into the line now. See how that <laughs> yeah. goes. Yeah, yeah. And unbelievably, <laughs> they would have been wise to it. Yeah. I mean, second I half they, they do. And they, they managed to defend it. They did. Oh, they wow. did. Second half. Early second half. They Oh, no, it is. It's in the first half. It's actually in the first half. That's crazy. They do try that. And Craig Green knocked it on. Like, they cover it. Oh, yeah, of Very course. Good. So, one where Craig Green hits that line and passes into touch as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They cover this. They they are switched mm. on. They're streetwise. Um, now, this is an interesting thing. Yeah. Because Philippe Seller has said since, uh, he said this a few years ago in an interview when talking about the World Cup final in 87, uh, he says he feels the biggest mistake France made is how they prepared for the game that day. Okay? So, where the All Blacks left the, the team get hotel. Smashed. No, they didn't go for Wales. Basically, the All Blacks, from the quarterfinals onwards, have been staying with families. They've been staying with, like, small families, and that was a deliberate thing they'd done in order to kind of reconnect with the New Zealand public, which is something they really were desperate to do after the the kind of few years leading into this. Okay, interesting. So this younger team, and it was something that the the coach, Brian Lahore, had kind of masterminded as such. Like, Sean Fitzpatrick referred to it as a masterstroke. So something they'd done, yeah was that they started doing all their training sessions at schools instead of doing them on kind of private fields and so on in rugby clubs. They started doing them okay. all on school pitches so that kids could come and watch them and come and connect with them and like sign autographs and so on afterwards. Right. Which I think is a really cool, really simple idea, but really connected yep. 
people to them. You just need to really hope that there was no like spies in there or team analysts who could, you know, figure yeah. out like, oh, lefto means Mate. they go left, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. 1987 there was no analysis going on no we just actually performed the first analysis on a 1987 rugby match ever holy shit <laughs> so so yeah so like after the game against argentina before the quarterfinal in scotland instead of just going straight they were due to fly straight to christchurch which was the playing this quarterfinal instead they got the bus and they would stop off each day and they kind of went it far more slowly and went in kind of increments and play, trained mm. in schools all across the country and they did that through the semi-final and then through the week leading to the final until the last few days when they still stayed in a hotel together. And instead of staying in a hotel for a whole week, they put them up just with random families. So Sean Fitzpatrick talks about how he stayed with the McDonald's. Him and Richard Lowe went and stayed with the McDonald's family for three days uh, with their, okay. the mum, dad, the kids, and they would just spend meanwhile, the night with them. Meanwhile, like... Ondot stayed in McDonald's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they would just spend one or two nights at you know at a random family from new zealand's house he would volunteer mm-hmm. and it kind of became like a really great way of them connecting with the nation people feeling really like this is our all black team and they kind of really speak for mm. us and our all black is playing in there right exactly yeah like he stayed with us a few weeks ago and now he's playing in the world cup final with a chicken yeah and <laughs> it kind of led to this yeah this like real real sense of connection with the nation and it's something David Kirk, like countless All Blacks, Grant Fox talked about this as well. But they kind of they left the team hotel that morning of the final, and the streets were lined with about five hundred people waiting outside the hotel, waiting outside the hotel to see them get on the bus. And then the entire way Which is through, funny. yeah, the entire way to the stadium, the streets were lined with people cheering and clapping and That's applauding. Fantastic. And Grant Fox said on that team bus was the most nervous he's ever been in his life. Oh, he's to be fair, felt... it's awful. Yeah. Like, we've gone and done that again with Wales, where we've gone and seen the yeah, yeah. team bus coming past. And every time, like, they have blacked out windows, typically. But mm. if you can see a slight silhouette through there, you can tell that they're shitting themselves. Yeah. Some of them. It depends on the player. But of course. Grant Fox said he was generally quite laid back, but he felt mm. himself dry heaving and almost throwing up before that. Oh, my God. Wow. On the bus there. He said the moment he arrived and got into the changing room and got into his kit, he was fine. And he felt really laid back and like comfortable okay. like it was just another game. But on the bus, he felt this like huge weight of a nation. He'd never seen New Zealand like Man. this. And he'd never seen cheering and so on like this outside the ground. And like That's lining crazy. the whole route through, cheering and shouting at the bus and cheering them on. And other things like they'd... Lahore had also like encouraged them to just go to the pub and hang out with locals and sing songs and stuff. Yeah. And just like wherever they went, just just like go and have like two beers and sing songs with locals to kind of connect with people and like, and it just led to this like absolute fever pitch, mm. like ridiculous level of hype and, and just love for the all genuine support, yeah. yeah, and love for the all blacks, like supporting your local team at that point, isn't it? Yeah, rather than yeah, the national exactly. team, and that's what they turned them into. They turned them into like a beloved club team for the entire mm. nation through all of this. And as I said, it led to like people sneaking to the ground and sitting on the. The, sitting on the steps and sitting on the, like the the railings and stuff instead of I have to say yeah in the amateur era when love is lost for the All Blacks Sean Fitzpatrick's bang on that's a masterstroke by Brian Lahore to yeah. pull those str- pull the strings of the nation to get his team to make his team a big deal again you know that's yeah. that's brilliant that's fantastic extreme something... risk as well I will say yeah, yeah, yeah. but massively paid off. 
Buck Shelford said when he was kind of seeing the people, like 500 people outside the hotel, mm. he thought, we're winning today. There's no way we lose this. We're kind of this like behind us. Yeah. The whole nation flooding through. And at the end, Grant Fox, at the end of his, his speech afterwards, he said, I'd like to thank all of you, New Zealand. And you know what? They contribute here. They certainly <laughs> like, they do. They really get behind them and contribute. Certainly do. France, on the other hand, the day of the final leading into this kickoff, mm. right? They got together. They came to the stadium early and they sat apparently very I think it was like they've met somewhere really close to the stadium or it might have even been the changing room. And the whole team sat around for about two and a half to three hours. And they talked through what this meant. They went into some depth. They all got incredibly mm. personal. And Seller talks about, you know, he, he it was the first time he'd really talked in detail about like his upbringing and his family and his, oh my God. Know, his wife and everything to his teammates. And all of them talked through like what their motivation and what this would mean and what this means to the nation and to the family and the people they grew up with, what this could lead to. And they spent, yeah, almost three hours. All of them went through in as much heartfelt detail as they could, opening up on the greatest possible level to... I do kind of love that. To, to each other. Yeah. And... Philippe Seller says that now, having had 20-odd years to think on it, this was, I think, 2015 he talked about this, he says, having had 20-odd years to think on this, I think that was the biggest mistake we could have made. Right. Because it meant we went into the game so emotionally charged. Yeah, really vulnerable. That we weren't right? focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said that we just, like, if you look at it, we were, like, anything that required emotion. So what we were saying about them covering John Kerwin and being everywhere in attack, mm. no, in defence, that was spot on because they were emotionally charged as they could possibly be. But yeah. anything that required accuracy, they were not focused. They couldn't hit at all. Interesting. And Seller said we were completely right to have done that. But we should have done it on the Thursday or maybe the Friday. We that's done it. That beforehand, if so they'd done this the day team. before, then that's yeah. brilliant. Because I think I think that's really really cool. The fact that they all opened yeah, up I to do. each other and that they all recognised each other's motivations and you know that they could really connect on that personal level and fight for each other. But you're right mm. that it's great if you have to if you can hear that from everybody else. But when you have to speak it as well on the same day, which unbelievably everybody had to, because that's just the way it works. Yeah. Then you then become vulnerable hours before kickoff. Yeah. You're right. If that if that was done on the day before or in the middle of the week, then that would have again been something of a masterstroke. You know. You think about Razi Erasmus's Springbok team that went and won in 2019. Yes. Very much a similar situation. That it was very yeah. clear to everybody by the knockout stages of what everybody's motivation was. You know, you look at Makazolim and Pimpi, Siakalisi, talking about the townships and everything. Rossi Erasmus talking about them and their motivation and how much that personally affects him. Mm. How much respect he has for those players. It's great that, I think that generally great teams are supportive of each other in that kind of a respect. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, the fact that they somebody has to do it on the day of the Rugby World Cup final to learn that that's not the best idea to do it on the day of the Rugby World Cup final, right? Yeah. So I don't blame France whatsoever for that. I think that's a great way of preparing generally. But Sella is yeah. correct that maybe give it 24 hours. Yeah. Didier Camembert also read, read talking about this. And he said a similar thing of he felt the team went in just far too emotional. Uh, he okay. said he felt the biggest mistake they made was that they tried to play the same tactics they played in the semi-final rather than approaching the All Blacks personally. Because okay. the semi-final went so well. We used the same tactics we used for the Wallabies rather than changing things up. But he said like I the see. other mistake was we were far too emotional. His wife was pregnant at the time when he went to France, when he went to New Zealand. Oh, okay. Uh, and he felt very guilty going over in the first place. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's it can't be an easy over anyway. scene, can it? No. Flew over, took part in the tournament, 
played really well, came back, and apparently, again, like, he hadn't told most of his teammates how shaky and nervous and everything he was and guilty he was about his wife until they had that session and they talked wow. about that. Yeah. And he was really open about that and talked about it. Wow. But it's not the only thing involving Didio Camembert that came out this week. No. No. Did this you? It's, yeah. Yes. So, so news broke in New Zealand the day before this involving that man. Yes. Didier Cambarabero this week came out as bald. <laughs> yes. Which in itself is quite a funny concept. But he... So it came out that he had had a hair transplant. He was previously bald and extremely self, self-conscious of image. is very image conscious. Mm. And the th- so... I'm going to explain two sides to this from my perspective, and then I'm going to ask for yours, okay? Okay. okay. On one side, it is funny, the way this explained. <laughs> yes. Because Keith Quinn says, like, oh, some of the some of us have known about this for a while. He's very, you know, he's been very conscious <laughs> yeah. about talking about this. Uh, but a- he's actually bald. And it's just like, oh, okay. Because I was thinking, like, it's the 80s. It would have been a big deal if it was like, oh, yeah, he's gay. Or something like that, yeah. which is what it's and built up to be. That's genuinely where I thought the sentence was going. Me and too. My brain Me was too. going, "Well, I would have, I would have heard about this if he was gay." You know? Yeah. And Alfie was the first professional player ever in a team sport right. to come out while still playing. But I was thinking, well, it was amateur era, so does that not count? Did right? Was Cameron Bear gay? Is this where it's going? And he's yeah, his hair's very well groomed and always in immaculate condition. Yeah, yeah. So it can't and be anything else. Like, oh no, that's the focus. Yeah, that's the focus here. Yeah. That, that he, he is... had, he'd gone bald and he lost all confidence whatsoever. And suddenly yes. his kicking stats plummeted. His play yes. plummeted. He was suddenly playing atrociously and dropped out of the national team because mm. he was bald. Because he was bald. And like Samson, his hair, his power is entirely in his hair. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, since growing it back, he'd regrown his confidence, got back his mojo, he'd learned to kick again. It's a really inspiring story, and presumably he told all I of this so. on the day of the final. I think so. As... That, that with <laughs> with great hair comes great kicking ability. The rest of them all go around and start talking about, you know, I'm doing this for my mum who passed away three years ago, and, you know, oh, I'm doing this, you know, in order to make my father proud who never believed in me, but I really want to show him I'm worth believing in. Then Didio Camembert goes, you know, guys, it's really tough to say, but... um. You can say it, DDA, you can say it. Yeah. Oh, it's a good thing he had a really supportive team behind him. That same interview where he talked about his wife being pregnant and talking about it for the first time and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, He then says, I'm really disappointed we lost the final, even though I felt I personally outplayed John Kerwin. (laughs) My man, I love that level of confidence. If he was bald, he'd never have said that. With a full head of hair, he is balls out. My man, Canberra Barrow. You, You big yourself up, my man. But I love that he said that like 30 years later. He's still clinging to that. Yeah. Kerwin scored the I, winning I try. Showed <laughs> I showed him. Yeah. I showed him that day. As I say, there's two sides to this, right? Because what I was going to say was that one side, again, it's funny that he came out as bald. The other yes. side is, I think it's really cool that a top level athlete has spoken about being image conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, especially male rugby players are all so, like, brazen and just, like, really unable to talk about that kind of a thing. And are really, like, you know, they have to be like, oh, I don't care about that kind of thing. I'm just naturally gorgeous. What do you want about? I think it's really cool 
that an international rugby player was like, actually, I was really, really conscious about the way I looked. And then actually yeah. I worked on it and I, I felt good in myself and I felt positive about my, I was going to use the phrase body positive. I don't think that's the correct phrase to use, <laughs> but I felt positive in myself and I then became a better rugby player as a result. And I think that's a cool thing that he's openly spoken about. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Like without Didier Camembert O'Bera, does Gavin Henson happen? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Probably also not. like I highly relate as someone whose hairline is starting to recede. Oh, like man. as someone who knows their days are ticking, you know, I I get it, I get it, man. As someone whose hair is currently so long and shaggy because because I know it's the last chance I'm gonna have, <laughs> you know. So yes, the game is kicked off by this point. France have done yes. a big scrum, yeah, and Grant Fox does an unbelievable Gary Owen. Oh, he hangs yes. in the air. And you think that's a kind of pointless kick and it's not hitting anything. And then not only does it kind of completely evade Blanco, it bounces perfectly one meter out from touch. Yeah. And Blanco's convinced it goes dead, but I think the touch judge correctly calls it's just before touch. But you're right, it completely bamboozles the French backfield. They have no idea yeah. how to defend something like that because it's just such an inconvenient kick. It doesn't matter that there's no one from New Zealand chasing it because it's going to be such a difficult thing because you know it's going to bounce three miles into the air or straight into touch. Like there's no easy way of dealing with that kick if you don't catch it on the full, which was so difficult to do. So yeah, it's just a brilliant start to the game by Fox. And because this was before all lineups being brought back to five meters, Mm. it means France have to throw in one inch out from their own try line. Yeah. Like basically on the line and before lifting line outs, if New Zealand steal this, they flop over and they've scored. Yeah. This is enormous pressure on in about the third minute. Yeah. And you're on edge here. And somehow Jean Condom secures it. Somehow he keeps it set as Jean Condom keeps it safe. But under enormous pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, it it keeps keeps going. They keep the pressure on. Like, there's a point where France, I think, knock it on a few phases later, or maybe it's Mm. after another attack. And there's a point. Grand Fox goes himself and gets turned over. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a point where. Keith gets really excited on the commentary and goes, "It's the lefto move!" As they run, <laughs> they run lefto in the final. Doesn't doesn't lefto. quite work out. Say what but, you like about Keith Quinn, but that man loves lefto. He certainly does love lefto, and I imagine he he's partial to the odd righto. Yeah, I mean he's okay with righto, but lefto is where it's at, man. It's lefto left. is where it's at. It's on the left. Yeah. After about almost ten minutes, right. The first three rucks out of three, <laughs> in 10 minutes, there's three rucks. All of them are blown as unplayable. Yeah. And yeah. so begins my irritation with Carrie Fitzgerald, the referee, right? Okay. And I have a policy on the channel and so on of not talking about refereeing and not complaining about refereeing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's bullshit and boring. But I think there's a statute of limitations for me of 25 years. And after 25 <laughs> years, you're okay to complain about the referee. I will also preface this, it, you know, with... I presume you're not about to say, mm. oh, we had a shit game, France were robbed. I presume that's not what you're about to say. I think he. there's two issues here, right? One is he gives New Zealand such a rub of the green, as it were. New Zealand get an awful lot of luck until about the last 10, 15 minutes, at which point they've wrapped it up. Like, okay, so France's first penalty awarded to them is in the 38th minute. That's absurd. Yeah, there's a few times in which they really should have had one. There's a few, like, real stat. Like, there's one ruck where New Zealand just go over and take Bebezier out as he's about to play the ball. 
yeah. and instead New Zealand are given the penalty. Buck Shelford does stamp on Urbani at one point. But then again, <laughs> he's Buck Shelford. I wouldn't point him out and say, you're penalised, mate. Like, oh, no, of course I can not. forgive him for that one. Sure. But also, my God, does he blow everything up as unplayable. Like, <laughs> yeah. There are points at which the ball is basically in the scrum half's hands and he blows up as unplayable for a scrum. There's a few it's silly constant. ones of that. Yeah. What I, like, what I just, really liked as well... enormously frustrating. So constantly off the back of scrums and rucks. So New Zealand, rightfully, were wanting to give loads and loads of ball to Buck Shelford. And Buck Shelford was clearly very much targeted by... You'd, you'd think this sentence is going to end with Daniel de Brodker, one of the big lads. Pierre sure, Bebezier sure. was absolutely manhandling the biggest man on the field. And I have yeah, yeah, yeah. so much respect for that because at the back of scrums, every time Kirk was saying, Shelford, you carry into Bebezier, you're three times his size, you're the strongest man in this World Cup, go for it. And Bebezier was just going around his legs and being an absolute pest every single time. And there's one point yeah. in the second half where Bebezier's clearly been going at him all day. There's a point where... Bezier chops him and Shelford drops the ball and kind of picks it back up again. The referee blows it and Shelford looks so insanely pissed off that he just like lobs the ball at the ground or something or shoves somebody. And there's, mm. there's a point again after that where he gets penalised because he, I think he gets up and tries crawling along the floor or something because he just does not want to accept the fact that a smaller man is getting under his skin. And yeah, yeah, yeah. again, like... You can you can sympathise with Shelford, right? Because he's not used to this. He's not used to getting bullied by somebody smaller than him. Because he's not only a massive number eight, but he's one of the best players in the world. Yeah. And, and one of the hardest men to ever live. That's it. And he does have a great game here as well, Shelford. But yeah, yeah, Bebezier yeah, does. does such an unbelievable job as a nine playing against an eight. That the, the size difference of what and what is expected of that kind of a clash is not something that's massively changed in the last thirty-five years. And Bebezier was world class at that, at dealing with Shelford. It's it's used before used, isn't it? Mm. That like dropping big men quickly, knowing yeah. exactly what to do, no matter yeah. what. That like never never allowing yourself to die or concede. Hundred percent. Yeah. I guess that's it, probably. There was probably a coach of junior rugby in South Africa at that point said, you know what, what if that, but the scrum half's big and strong? And then, as you yeah. say, on, along comes Yerst. Like, yeah, it was a fantastic performance all round by Bebezier to kind of preface that. I'm going to talk a lot about how good he was. But, yes. And I'm afraid that is kind of a cliffhanger. We're splitting this into two parts because we went on for very close to three hours. In fact, we recorded for more than three hours. And so we're going to split this in half. The next part will go up on Monday as we get into the rest of the World Cup final from 1987. And also talk through our dick of the day, our man of the match, as well as revealing which World Cup we'll be doing next, which the next series will be dedicated to. Please join us in a few days for that on the Monday if you're listening as this goes up. If not, and it's already passed the um, last Monday in September, then Grand is probably going to autoplay after this anyway. So there's no point listening to me talk on beyond this. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in a few days' time for part two. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 